we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And today we're going to be talking about a new asylum rule from the Biden administration that has the advocacy groups that support the administration, the uh, you know weak enforcement immigration expansionist groups, has their hair on fire, imagining that it's just a resumption of Trump policies, blah, blah, blah. The uh, point of the rule is supposedly to require people to apply for asylum in countries they pass through before they get to the United States. But to tell us about the rule and what it is and what it isn't, we have in studio Elizabeth Jacobs with the center who was at USCIS in the previous administration and has worked on these kind of issues, knows a lot about it, wrote about it at our website, cis.org. The link will be in the show notes. And so Liz is going to tell us what this is, what it isn't, and why it's probably not what the Biden supporters, who are all up in arms, think it is. So Liz, thanks for coming in. And just to start out, tell listeners, what is this? Why is this important? What is it not? Thank you, Mark. First, let's start with what it is intending to do. DHS and DOJ have stated that the purpose of this regulation is to deter illegal immigration across the southern border for cases that do not comply with the quote-unquote lawful ways the departments have created to allow aliens without any legal authorization to enter the United States and nevertheless enter the United States and receive parole. The regulation states that The Department of Homeland Security and Department of Justice will impose a presumption against eligibility for asylum for aliens who do not apply for asylum or another form of humanitarian protection in a third country they transit through en route to the United States. Right. So the point of this is people coming from Central America and even points beyond who aren't applying in Mexico at least, or in one of the other countries they pass through, because the UN Treaty on Asylum says that illegal immigrants have to be considered for asylum. They can't just be ruled out because they're illegal, but only if they come directly from the country where they claim to be persecuted. Our law is more expansive. It doesn't require that. So what you're saying is that the supposed goal of this is to kind of implement that idea that you're supposed to apply for asylum as soon as you get out of the place you're being persecuted rather than do forum shopping, basically, and use it as a way to just immigrate somewhere you like better. Sure. The concept is that because asylum is a discretionary benefit provided by our laws, aliens have the right to apply for asylum, but whether they are granted asylum is a matter of DHS or DOJ discretion. Right. Our government is choosing to 
make aliens ineligible if they have not applied for asylum in a country they transited through that is a signatory to one of these treaties. Right. However, that is how it's being advertised. That is not how it will be implemented. There are a wide range of exceptions included in this rule that's going to swallow the rule whole, essentially. It will not serve the deterrence purposes that is being advertised to serve. And it has quite a few differences to the Trump administration's third country transit regulation that on his face attempted to accomplish the same ends. Right. And that regulation was held up in court. Is that correct? Yes. So it actually was never implemented. It was issued in 2019, finalized in 2020, and vacated by a federal court. So it was not in effect. So just to go back to that, was there an appeal or did it fall to the Biden administration and they didn't appeal? What happened to that rule when a judge vacated it? Then what? I mean, it didn't go to the Supreme Court, right? It was. Uh, No, the Trump administration was at that time using MPP relatively successfully. I see. So they just decided not to pursue the case? Yes. And the Biden administration initially also did not take it further. Right, right. Interesting. So what are some of these exceptions that essentially swallow much of the rule? Well, the regulation allows any alien who falls under these exceptions to not have the rule applied to them. First, if they were provided authorization in the United States to seek parole pursuant to one of DHS's new parole programs, this won't apply to them. Like the program using the CBP-1 app? Yes, it uses the CBP-1 app, but it's for nationals of certain countries, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Ukraine. They could get pre-authorization to enter the United States and receive parole. So they would not be required to apply for asylum, say, in Mexico, or if they're Ukrainian in Poland or somewhere, they could just come here anyway. Correct. Okay. And what's another exception? They use the CBP-1 app, even if they're not a national from one of these countries, to schedule their unlawful arrival in the United States at a specific time and place of DHS's choosing. Right. Okay. There's also exceptions to this exception. (laughs) If they demonstrate that they had certain language barriers, they were illiterate, they had technical difficulties using the app and therefore it was not possible for them to schedule their arrival, they still can enter and not have the presumption against eligibility applied to them. How about people with kids? Is that an exception as well? There's a large family unit exception. Families that are able to demonstrate that they are eligible for withholding of removal, which would, like asylum, provide protection for certain persecution and torture claims can nevertheless receive asylum despite the rule's presumption against eligibility. Right, right. Therefore, DHS and DOJ are essentially providing incentives for adult migrants to bring children with them. Right. And also, as always, if you're a so-called unaccompanied so-called minor, this wouldn't apply to you either. You'd still be governed by a different body of rules and could apply for asylum. Yes, this regulation, as well as the previous Trump administration, third country transit rule, does not apply to unaccompanied alien minors. Right. And you mentioned the issue of withholding of removal, and this is getting a little wonky, but I think it's important for people to know that when people are considered for asylum, they are at the same time considered for potentially being allowed to stay under something called the Convention Against Torture, which has a different basically a different yardstick to measure by, and withholding of removal. So 
barring people from asylum is only barring them from one particular kind of ID card, in a sense. It isn't necessarily even barring them from being able to stay in the United States. Yes. Withholding removal has a somewhat higher screening standard and a credible fear screening, but it still would provide an alien protection from removal for certain persecution and torture claims Mm -hmm. and then provide them work authorization in the United States. If an alien is determined in their screening to be eligible for withholding a removal, it is likely, given the Biden administration's current policies, that they will ultimately be released into the United States, released from detention despite the Immigration and Nationality Act requiring detention for those populations. Right, right, exactly. So in other words, not only are there lots of exceptions to the asylum rule, but there are other ways that are kind of bundled with asylum as a practical matter that people can stay. And this rule doesn't bar them from any of those either. Correct. Right. So what do you think the point of this rule was then if it's got so many exceptions and so many loopholes, is it likely to do much? I don't think we can depend on this regulation having a strong deterrence effect. I think it is another strategy for the Biden administration to appear to the general American public that they are attempting to force the rule of law on our southern border. The extreme wide exceptions that are included, however, show that it will in practice be applied to just a few migrants. Right. Yeah. So basically, if you're a single adult male from certain countries of the world, it might apply to you, kind of, is sort of what it amounts to. Correct. However, if you said that your CBP-1 app was not working while you were trying to schedule your unlawful arrival, you You still might be able to get around it. Yeah. In fact, I was in Mexico a few weeks ago and spoke to a Colombian woman and also to a guy running a migrant shelter, and both of them said, yeah, the CBP-1 app is just a mess. It's a disaster. And the administration heard these complaints and responded somewhat, but the fact is it doesn't work very well. And so you've got this automatic excuse mm-hmm. that, you know, sort of the dog ate my CBP-1 kind of, and so let me in. I would just also add that the regulation includes a catch-all provision saying that if an alien provides exceptionally compelling circumstances, they also could avoid... <laughs> having this rule applied to them. And they list a non-exhaustive list that included that the alien or a family member they were traveling with experienced an acute medical emergency or they faced an imminent or extreme threat to their safety, including a threat of rape, kidnapping, torture, or murder. All of these do seem like compelling circumstances, but I think everyone who is familiar with the situation and the credible fear process, particularly in Southern border generally, it is ripe to be exploited and abused. Right. And just for people who aren't regular listeners, the credible fear process is the screening interview that doesn't give you asylum, but just is designed to kind of screen out people who are obviously not eligible for asylum. But most people end up passing that first hurdle. And is this where that would be applied, this new rule? Okay. So so this isn't even a rule for whether you get asylum. It's a rule for whether you get to apply for asylum. Is that a fair way to put it? It applies to whether or not you can progress 
in your asylum application to a stage where your application will be adjudicated on the merits. Right. Currently, the government is either funneling those as they traditionally have to the immigration courts for mm-hmm. a full merits interview and removal proceedings. Years in the future, unfortunately. Right yes, now. with yes. a long backlog, especially yeah. if the immigration courts generally prioritize their detained docket. But right. if the government is not detaining these applicants, then they will have a long backlog. Right. And then in other situations, the government is, for certain cases, having asylum officers make final determinations. And this is based off of the April 2022 regulation that the Biden administration issued. And that regulation's in effect, right? I mean, so... It's in effect, but it's not being implemented across the board. How so? Only certain places, in other words? Yes. And I think that the government is still in pilot stages for okay. implementation. We don't know how that's working yet. There hasn't, have there been any results? USCIS has not published this right. information. And the interesting thing there is that instead of, as you suggested, the case going to an immigration court where the judge makes the determination in an adversarial setting where the government could present contrary evidence, the way this would work is that a USCIS asylum officer in an interview with no contrary evidence being presented can just decide right then and there to give somebody asylum. Is that correct? That's correct. It's intended to fast track the asylum process in a non-adversarial setting, meaning there will be no ICE attorney to evaluate the claims that are being made or perhaps, like you said, present contrary evidence. So what should a third country transit rule look like? I mean, because just in a sort of layman's gut sense, if asylum is you know, saving like a drowning person as a metaphor, you know, you throw him a life preserver and he grabs whatever is closest to hand. People obviously shouldn't be allowed to forum shop and use asylum just as a kind of a gimmick in order to get into the United States or Australia or Israel or Germany. I mean, this is a problem a lot of developed countries have. So what were the differences in that Trump era third country transit rule that this one does not really track, even though a lot of the advocates are saying that. The primary purpose of a third country transit policy is to disperse the asylum and humanitarian border across countries in the Western Hemisphere that also have functioning asylum and humanitarian programs. Right. And the Trump administration's regulation attempted to do so, but with much narrower exceptions in the Biden administration's regulation. Right. And that's key because it limited the possibility for aliens to exploit the policy. The Trump administration's regulation exceptions were primarily just aliens who could demonstrate that they were victims of severe forms of human trafficking. Right. UACs, aliens who demonstrated that they applied for protection for persecution or torture in one of the countries they transited through and were denied. Okay. And that sort of meets the point. In other words, you did apply somewhere else, Mm -hmm. right? And aliens who transited through countries that were not parties to one of the treaties. Which there aren't many of, frankly. So to go back to that Trump rule, why was that stopped in court? In other words, what was the rationale? And why would this Biden rule pass muster? with the same court if it comes to that. 
Sure. It was challenged on both APA grounds and on the grounds that it violated both U.S. asylum laws and humanitarian obligations under these treaties. Do we know, have there been court challenges yet to this new Biden rule? I haven't seen any file, but I do know that organizations that represent migrants or recent immigrants are planning to file challenges to the rule. Right. And they've got lawyers coming out the wazoo, so they'll they'll be filing something exactly to stop this. So this new asylum rule, which, you know, isn't what it's all cracked up to be, is coming in the context of really high numbers of the border, obviously. Last fiscal year, two million plus so-called encounters. It's the PC word now we use for apprehensions. The numbers are down some in January and February, almost certainly. I expect them to go up a little bit, quite frankly, pretty quickly. So what is the context sort of numbers-wise that this decision, that this new rule is happening in? Well, illegal immigration across the southern border has, as we all know, been at crisis levels and have been so since fiscal year 2021. Um, Since January 20th, in fact, coincidentally. Yes. (laughs) Customs and Border Protection has encountered over 4.2 million migrants since February 2021, the month after President Biden took office, Mm -hmm. and has reported 1.7 million encounters in 2021, 2.4 million encounters in fiscal year 2022, and then almost 900,000 encounters so far in fiscal year 2023, with over 251,000 reported in the month of December 2022 alone. Right. And these figures do not even include gotaways, which is a term used by CBP to describe migrants whom officers detected crossing the border illegally but failed to apprehend. And then of those apprehended, approximately 1.8 million migrants have been released into the country by our government using parole or another, sometimes not even with parole or a notice to appear. Right. And then experts estimate that roughly 1.2 million gotaways evaded apprehension entirely during this time for a total of 3.1 million inadmissible aliens entering the United States under the Biden administration alone. And obviously part of the point of what this rule should be, which it really isn't, is to remove the magnet, the incentive for people to do this. I mean, because the fact that we are giving out asylum to people who should have applied elsewhere, even if they're eligible for asylum, and frankly, most of them aren't, but even the eligible ones should have applied before they got here because there's not that many people from Mexico applying for asylum. They're passing through Mexico. And as I always like to point out, Mexico has a pretty well-developed asylum system. They have an, a refugee and asylum agency. The initials are the acronym is COMAR, Commission for Migration or something like that. And if you go on the website, and I've linked to it multiple times, they have this very helpful video with an attractive young woman walking you through the process of how to apply for asylum and smiling, happy people going to the window at the COMAR office and submitting their paperwork and what are they supposed to do. So. It's not as though any of these people has not had any opportunity to apply for asylum. They just would prefer not to. And if they continue to be able to do that, the flow we're seeing at the border is going to continue. So some kind of third country transit rule 
seems essential. In fact, I think it should be in statute, which it's not. This is a regulation. This is something you know the Congress should be looking at. But this rule isn't it. That's that's basically I think the upshot of what you're saying is that it is that it's kabuki. It's it's kind of PR to make it seem like they're responding mm-hmm. to this issue. Sure. And on that point, what I would also emphasize is that in recent years, migrants crossing the southern border are not only Mexican nationals or Central American nationals. We are encountering nationals from over 100 countries around the world that are encouraged to come to the United States illegally with the knowledge that our current administration is not faithfully enforcing our immigration laws and that there are many avenues and loopholes to exploit to enter the United States, remain, and oftentimes even receive work authorization from our government to work. A third country transit rule implemented and designed properly would deter this type of illegal immigration, but this administration is not showing an appetite to do that. You know, your point about people from further afield, not just from those countries, uh, you know, bordering on or right near Mexico, suggests maybe we need another word because it's not really third country because we're talking fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, twelfth, fifteenth country rule. In other words, there's mm-hmm. all kinds of countries these a lot of these people passed through mm-hmm. where they should have applied for asylum. And some of them, in the case of a lot of the Haitians that are coming, they already had asylum in Brazil or Chile and are just trying to trade up, as Todd Benzman has described in his new book, Overrun, which was just released this week. So yeah, I mean, this is asylum is one of the big vulnerabilities or potential problems for maintaining sovereignty of developed countries. Because, and I say developed countries specifically, not only because that's where most migrants want to illegally go to, but because they're the only ones who are honoring their treaty obligations anyway. I mean, the communist China is a signatory to the refugee convention. Do you think they give a flying fandango about whether you're eligible for asylum or not? Of course not. In my opinion, the whole refugee convention or the protocol that we signed, we need to withdraw from. But in lieu of that, a proper, like you suggested, a, a, a real third country transit rule is an important stopgap. Unfortunately, that's not what the administration has given us. A properly implemented third country transit rule will still prioritize aliens who are have the most legitimate need for asylum, but it's also worth re-emphasizing that many of the migrants that are crossing the southern border are on their own accounts, not fleeing persecution on account of a protected ground, like our statutes protect or cover, or torture. They are fleeing perhaps generalized violence, perhaps domestic violence, but those types of harms are generally not covered by our laws. Or sometimes they are simply seeking to join family who are here legally or illegally, or they want to become United States residents because they this country is a great money. place to live. Yeah, they yes. want to earn more money. I mean, that's or economic fact, migrants, exactly. And in fact, the interesting thing is Todd in his book Overrun, which is available on Amazon, talked to lots of migrants before they got to government officials where they had to make an asylum claim and 
you know, almost everybody he talked to said, oh, yeah, well, I'm coming because Biden invited me and this will be a you know, way to earn more money and join family. I mean, it's only when they get when they've been coached and they get to the asylum officer or the CBP people, do they then say the magic words about how they're persecuted or what have you? In fact, there was an interesting example, a Haitian guy he talked to, I think it was in Costa Rica at a a kind of smuggling haven, a kind of unofficial little village that wasn't even on the map, but it had a hotel and restaurant and what have you that migrants use. That's the whole point. That's what it was for before they crossed into Nicaragua. And there was a Haitian guy there and he'd been living in Chile for many years. And he said to Todd, you know, things are great in Chile. I had a job. It's way better than, a thousand times better than Haiti. And so Todd was like, well, then why are you here thousands of miles from where you were trying to get into the United States? And the Haitian guy kind of smiled and chuckled. And he said, because the United States is a million times better than Haiti. They're trading up. That's what this amounts to. And this kind of rule is an important part of dissuading people from trying to game our asylum system in order just to trade up their standard of living. Sure. This type of rule also does not prevent inadmissible aliens from entering the United States. It's just asking them to use the app, <laughs> essentially. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Or a parole program, which in our view is unlawful because is not permitting proper use of parole, which is supposed to be a case-by-case determination based on urgent humanitarian or significant public benefit reasons. But it's, it's essentially trying to mask the optics of illegal immigration from the American public while still allowing large numbers of inadmissible aliens to enter the United States and receive work authorization. Yeah, basically what it is, is trying to change the situation at the border. So instead of the alien breaking the law by sneaking across the border, the aliens line up at the port of entry and the government breaks the law by letting them in illegitimately. Exactly. It's, it's still illegal immigration either way. It's just the question is, who's the one breaking the immigration law to let these people into the country? Exactly. And an inadmissible alien who enters with an appointment is still inadmissible pursuant to our immigration laws. And an unlawful grant of parole doesn't cure the crisis that we have. It only changes how the government is required to report the information to the public. Right. Yeah. So while encounter numbers are likely to go down, the more important metric now will be parole numbers, like how many aliens are being paroled into the United States unlawfully by our government. Which uh, is this super transparent administration reporting parole grants? It is not. Yeah, well, exactly. So this is a way of hiding the ball, basically, just pretending Mm -hmm. that the illegal flow across the border isn't happening, but it still is going to be happening. So thanks for coming in. We've had on today Elizabeth Jacobs, who is an analyst here at the center and has a piece on this asylum rule. It'll be in the show notes. And we're looking forward to hearing from you in the future, how this is actually going. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Liz. And finally, uh, this week, I wanted to just draw your attention to a New York Times story on the young migrant kids, uh, illegal alien kids, although they don't actually point that out in the story, being exploited in workplaces. And this was a, a long investigative story 
the reporter spent a lot of time on it, and there's all kinds of, you know, uh, sort of hair-raising uh, incidents in it. You know, 14, 15-year-old kids working in very dangerous environments. And they, you know, they identify various problems, sort of weak links in the chain. The Department of Health and Human Services, whose Office of Refugee Resettlement is in charge of placement of illegal immigrant kids, unaccompanied alien children, UACs is what they call them, who cross the border unaccompanied. But there's a particular process. They're not returned immediately unless they're from Mexico or Canada, and they're delivered to a sponsor. And there's a lot of areas where there can be you know, failures there. And Health and Human Services is one of them where they're moving these teenagers out of shelters to their so-called sponsors as quickly as possible. And the secretary of HHS, Javier Becerra, really came in for some well-deserved criticism for you know, wanting to get these young people out of shelters so that the advocacy groups didn't complain, but they did it without doing proper vetting. And so you end up with a lot of these young people in, in really terrible situations. Now, a lot of, most of them are just delivered to their parents who are here illegally and paid to have them smuggled or to other close relatives, but there's so many of them, there are a lot of hair-raising stories like this. But the policy reason this is happening is something the story only touches on very obliquely and doesn't really address. There's a rule that unaccompanied minors coming from non-contiguous countries, in other words, not from Mexico or Canada, mostly from Central America, but you know, increasingly from other places, but still mostly from Central America, that they're not just returned to their home countries as they were before 2008 when the law changed and numbers really were so small, the legal change didn't seem to be of much consequence. They end up being able to stay and ultimately they just stay permanently regardless of what happens with asylum hearings or not. But the story puts it this way, quote, the policy codified in anti-trafficking legislation, is intended to prevent harm to children who would otherwise be turned away and left alone in a Mexican border town, unquote. Well, no, not really. What would happen, of course, is that an unaccompanied teenager, say from Guatemala, would be returned to Guatemala. But this policy makes that extremely difficult, and it just doesn't happen very much. And so what our law has done, specifically here they're talking about the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, TVPRA, what that loophole does is incentivizes families to send their teenagers to the United States. And some of them come on their own. I mean, if you're 15 or 16 in a lot of these developing countries, and this was the case, frankly, here 100 years ago, you may not legally be an adult, but for practical purposes, you're an adult. You just come to work. So it's not even seen as that unusual, but what it's done is incentivize these teenagers to either come on their own or to be sent by their families to the United States because it's a way of getting in and getting past the Border Patrol and working and sending money home. So this legislation, which was part of this anti-trafficking bill, in a sense is actually fostering 
trafficking and is the reason you have these 15-year-olds working 12-hour shifts in a cereal packing plant after getting out of school because they're going to school too. Some of them don't. There's a lot of that too. But the people that this author, this reporter focused on was kids who were in school and then were working these long shifts, often because they were forced to or they had to pay off smuggling debts, and then would come to school and you know fall asleep. So this is a real problem. I mean, the incidents that this reporter, that this New York Times story talks about really are outrageous. But the problem is not that Health and Human Services isn't doing a good enough job of vetting the sponsors. That's part of it. There's no question about that. Although this administration should know that's a problem because the same kinds of things happened under Obama when there were young people who were trafficked because of this loophole and were found working in an egg farm and various other places. But the sort of upstream reason for this, the reason this is happening in the first place, the reason Health and Human Services is pushing these kids out of shelters without properly vetting their sponsors is that this loophole in the immigration law incentivizes the illegal immigration of teenagers. That's what needs to be changed. And if that's changed, then this all of the downstream effects, which this New York Times story very aptly and horrifyingly describes, decrease significantly. And instead, because that's kind of an unthinkable thought for people in legacy media, they have to focus on the symptoms or the downstream problems rather than the actual reason, the root reason this is happening, which is bad immigration policy. That's it for this week for Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, your host, and we will be back next week. 